so I'm hyperventilating a little bit. If I fall over, pick me up because I've got some things to say. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. That men are essential for procreation, but when it comes to pleasure, unnecessary. Dinosaurs eat men. Woman inherits the earth. Safety lights are for dudes. Safety lights are for dudes. <laughs> well, put some skates on. Be your own hero. Hey, the New York Lord, please give it up for the dazzling vocal stylings of Miss Skimmerly. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where four awesome ladies talk about all the good and bad in the world of film. And I am Karen Peterson. Joined by Kristen Lopez. Hello. Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And Kimberly Pierce. Hello, hello. This is episode 74. Um, before we get into things, uh, just something we wanted to make sure y'all know about. We did our second annual bracket challenge, and that's for our Patreon subscribers. You'll be able to listen to it by the time that you are hearing this episode. It is live for you over at patreon.com slash citizen dame this year's theme was villains i'd like to fuck it was, it was bonkers <laughs> an hour and 40 minutes of sheer inanity and you'll come for the the challenge but you'll stay for the weird secrets that are revealed for the thirst yeah i was gonna say yes. the thirst <laughs> i want to say lauren i think is still traumatized by the discoveries that were made there are, there are things that were said that can never be unheard there were debaucherous statements left and right we learned things about kim that we never knew and um and yeah kristen was... spends the entire hour and 41 minutes saying that she should have picked somebody else who was definitely playing a pedophile <laughs> As one that was yeah, the tip is. of the iceberg I have to say that was the tip of the I iceberg I know, who would have thought that that would be the least controversial statement made on that episode oh yeah, the bottom line is you need to listen to it it's freaking hilarious and yeah and we also need to know what you guys think so like hear, hear who we picked and why and then like discreetly let us know where your choices are because we can't let the cat out of the bag we got to keep things secret so it's just for patreon so hence you should subscribe to patreon, patreon. so you can listen to this joy joyfulness patreon.com slash citizen dame do it that's right and speaking of thirst <laughs> there was a conversation this week on twitter that was very interesting um it was all about whether there's a place for thirst in film criticism. And uh, so basically this um, this started... It's amazing with, what breaks film Twitter. Isn't it? It's so funny. Um, but yeah, so QV Huff, is that how you say his name? Uh, he tweeted earlier this week, the amount of film, quote, journalists thirsting over celebrities online highlights a lack of professionalism and it's completely infuriating uh, so that's where it started and um, some other people got into this conversation and started talking about how like there's no problem thirsting after celebrities 
it doesn't mean that you're not professional and other people started saying that it did and it was just a whole big hilarious mess who would like to start off this discussion no i'll i'll start this off Uh, as as somebody who thirst tweets regularly i think i tweeted (laughs) i said if i got rid of all my thirst tweets on twitter i'd have maybe 30 tweets maybe um so (laughs) full full disclosure Full disclosure, um, the the quote-unquote editor, I use editor loosely, who started this discussion, I used to write for it. Um, of course, of course I did. Um, and this is a person that professionally got really upset that I was complaining to him on Twitter about his chronic need to tweet that people should give him money for his site because he was, quote, doing the work. He was the real film critic who was appreciative of film. And why does nobody give him money? He employs women. Why does nobody give him money? He gives women a chance to write for $15 an article. Um, And this is all to the same editor who, when I asked about writing an article about Jennifer Jason Lee for his website, I got told that, quote, he didn't really like her. But that if I wanted to write about Jennifer Conley, he liked her. And he was okay with that. But, you know, don't send a tweet about how Chris Hemsworth is hot. Um, I find this to be hilarious. Um, I find this hilarious because we talk about a specific type of film culture and a specific type of person we refer to as a film bro. And it's usually these very small sites that don't pay anything or, you know, very little, that have very little clout, that feel that they are the last word in real film real auteurs, you know, where, where everybody else is about clickbait and pop culture and, you know, uh, what is it, superhero movies. You know, these sites are, are real. Um, and I find it hilarious that he wants to talk about how he wouldn't employ, employ like he's giving somebody a living wage, um, he wouldn't take on a, a freelancer that thirst tweets. Um, that's your prerogative. You are more than welcome to not take on anybody that you don't like um, for what they say. But it thirst tweeting is specifically something that women specifically and, and um, you know, the, the queer community engage in a lot. And it's, as Lauren has talked about, and I've mentioned it a couple times, you know, that we, we joke about nudity, we talk about it a lot. It's subversive. It's trying to undo you know centuries of male objectification against women why can't we do it because it makes you now you're uncomfortable with it um it it just unleashes and proves the double standard and i find it hilarious that we're considered unprofessional because of it and mind you this is a landscape where i know karen and i've talked about this we get told we're unprofessional a lot you're unprofessional if you're thirst tweeting you're unprofessional if you ask a celebrity that you're talking to to take a picture with you at the end of your interview after, like, you're just chatting about nothing. Um, you're unprofessional if, you know, you go to a party and you tell somebody that you're there. I mean, it's just, we have very few perks of our job. We don't get paid very much. Um, why? Now we can't even tweet about something. I, I mean, it's just, it's well, laughable. It smacks at of... This point. Um... I just I see stuff like this and it's like they don't like I mean a lot of these tweets when we get in these these conversations they get a lot of traction they get a lot of attention it drives these conversations and to me it's like 
oh, I don't want to be part of that conversation, so you guys can't talk about it. You know, it just seems so whiny and it's such, it's another one of those gatekeeper things, you know, it's, it's, well, I'm going to drive this conversation. I'm going to dictate what you can talk about and what's appropriate. And meanwhile, you've got dudes writing really, really racy stuff in their New Yorker reviews about about Incredibles 2 and Helen and that, you know, and it's just like, well, wait, why is that okay? But I can't tweet about Chris Hemsworth's abs. Harry, Harry Knowles made, Harry Knowles made a career off of writing about women in, in yeah. his reviews, objectifying them. He made a career off of that. And I guarantee you that, that editors, and again, I use these terms loosely. These are guys with blogs. Um, editors deify him. You know, like that's who they want to be um, in terms of success. And you have to look at what, what that success started with. Lauren, Kim? Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I think I talked a lot about this on Twitter. I think we all did. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just like, first of all, I thought it was funny. I thought that the, and, and I think it's very indicative going off of what both of you are saying. I think it's very indicative that one of the things that this guy singled out, not in his original tweet, but in the, in the later conversation that happened and as he kept on talking about it. Um, Dons, he, right? Dons, yeah. yes. Yeah. Like singled out. <laughs> The fact that people were mentioning celebrity donks. And now, of course, the minute that you start saying that, it's like, okay, so you're directing this, not, you know, you're not talking about boobs. Jennifer Connelly's tits are fine, but yeah, dongs are the problem. You're not talking about naked women. You're, you're specifically talking about penises. Which we never uh, get to see, which, by course, the way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which, which, you know, at most we get to talk about the vague outline, you know? <laughs> Or, or make racy comments about what's holding up Chris Hemsworth's pants, you know, that kind of thing. Um, uh, but so the second you begin talking about that, of course, you're, you're immediately directing this at uh, uh, heterosexual or bisexual women and at queer people. Like immediately, because you're, you're at queer men specifically, you're singling out very specific group of people that to which he does not belong. He is a cishet man white man um and so you're immediately beginning to and you're saying like oh well this and and he's couching all this with an unprofessional right so it's not really like oh i morally disapprove of it or um you know i i i am just going to try to censor just like no 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 you're not being professional enough but it's specifically women and queer people that are not being professional enough in you know and i absolutely agree if you are writing your entire if you're sitting down to write a, a actual critique of bad times at the el royale and all you can talk about is chris hemsworth's body yeah i i think that that's a little much like that you probably shouldn't be doing that right but if you're just fucking on twitter like and you're like oh i think chris hemsworth is hot or you want to talk about chris hemsworth's dick who cares first of all who cares it's social all, media. <laughs> exactly. It, yeah, exactly. You know, um, women talking about it. You saw a lot of, uh, of tweets from queer women coming out uh, around the time of The Favorite about how much they want Rachel Weisz. Fine. Who cares? Like, that is not hurting anybody. The only thing that it is doing is that it is taking away this particular man's and men in general's right to police female desire and to police queer desire and that's really what he's upset about underneath all of this he doesn't have control over something and he's trying to gain control over it and we keep on seeing this again and again with men that are like this and, and the problem that i have with this dude is not that it's one dude 
talking about something stupid. It's that there are so many men who behave like this. And there's such a long history of men like this trying to police, control, censor, degrade, uh, or mock this kind of desire. Any desire that does not centralize them, that does not come from their perspective. And it's wrong. It's gross it's not okay and and it's not about professionalism it is about his personal morality and his discomfort and you know what if dicks make him uncomfortable i am going to talk about dicks so much <laughs> like i want him to know all of the dicks that we that we love and that we want to see like that is the point that i'm at with all of this shit so it's <laughs> it's ridiculous I'm not sure if I could say anything extra to really follow anything in this conversation up. It's been covered so incredibly well, and I agree 100% with all of it. I talked a lot about it on Twitter as well. I think I mostly snarked about it on Twitter, but it's social media. It's this, this particular editor, I give it a grain of salt because I have seen him jump on the metaphorical cross so often about professionalism. And ultimately... Like Kristen, you said, this website pays fifteen dollars and yeah, fifteen dollars per article, and it's no, there's no, there's no place in this. If you know, you're not paying enough to dictate any behavior. And frankly, I've seen male editors from bigger outlets behaving far worse than any contributors for this website. It's you're not stay out of it. It's like, it's social media. Everybody's right. You know, everybody has their own opinion. And what's the problem with a little thirst tweeting? I can't think of many people who don't do it. <laughs> That's just, well, and, well, and also I would, I would say too, you know, we're, we're all freelance and, you know, Karen staff, but we, we write regularly and I can tell you, and I think we can all say that we have written articles inspired by tweets not uh, you know by thirst not necessarily um completely about it but i know i've written a whole article about army hammer and on the basis of sex that had a point but it was inspired by like being like i love army hammer i want to write this article and people like it i mean i think we've all written something and been paid handsomely at least uh, i hope we all have um, <laughs> you're funny <laughs> <laughs> inspired by a thirst tweet or you know somebody appreciating somebody's beauty and i think that's what it really boils down yeah. to thirst tweets are about appreciating somebody's good looks their and their aesthetics and i that's what it that's what it's been boiling down to since cinema started the fan magazine i mean we and it's not objectification i think although it is um, when when women do it, it's both objectifying, but it's also this appreciation. It's like the gaze. Yeah. You know, when you look at the gaze in cinema, there is an intent to it. And I think for better or worse, that's what you have to look at when you look at thirst tweets. What is the intent? The, the intent is, yes, sexuality, but it's also a respect and a reverence. We wouldn't be tweeting about these people if we didn't like them. No one's ever wrote a shitty thirst tweet about how they hate somebody but you know i mean maybe somebody has but i don't know i, I totally um, <laughs> <laughs> okay well lauren lauren does everything i think nobody has done. Um, i hate oliver reed and i want him so much it's horrible oh my god oh my god <laughs> lauren i 
no Ollie Reed this episode. (laughs) I have, like, mentioned Ollie Reed, like, twice, maybe, over the course of this entire podcast. Don't even. Don't even. I know. I know that secretly, deep down, every word you say is motivated by Ollie Reed. It is. So, yeah, there's that. I mean, that's, that's what I think it boils down to. And, of course, this guy wouldn't know what appreciation is because he's got a whole list of rules for writers. Uh, including take two days off of social media to fully appreciate film. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Never. the thing is... Go, go look at a dick pic. Like, that's what a... That, yeah. There you go. <laughs> I'm just tired of the, the insinuation that it's just women and and queer people that do this because that's not true. Like, scroll through a lot of dudes' tweet feeds, look at what they're writing on instagram stuff like that it's like no they're everybody's doing this it doesn't make you unprofessional if you if you engage in this behavior what makes you unprofessional is how you compose yourself you know in these conversations and if like if chris hemsworth were to message me and say like hey could you not talk about that anymore i would respect that for a lot of reasons but uh you know like you lost me, and if Chris Hemsworth DM'd me, I'd be like, um, that cease and desist what? order would get screenshotted so quick. <laughs> Just like you guys, you guys, Chris Hemsworth wants me to not talk about his dick anymore. Yep. Yeah. Chris Hemsworth knows <laughs> me. <laughs> well, and and there is there is a valence. There is a difference between very and we. You know, you're mentioning it, Kristen and, and Karen. Everybody's mentioning it. But the, there's a difference between the way that women talk about men or the way that, that queer men talk about men and the way that men talk about women. And and, and you can you can see it. You can feel it. You can feel the creepiness. And for and some of it is simply the willingness to, to put it in a professional piece of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've talked about the reviews of Wonder Woman where – like you get some weird ass male fantasies that are suddenly creeping into this, these reviews that have nothing to do with the film. Yeah. Um, and so, but so the problem is is not you know uh, people thirst tweeting, you know people talking about you know if you think that Gal Gadot is hot, like awesome, yes she is hot. Talk about it. Talk about it all you want on Twitter. You know don't don't put it into creepy constructions in a coverage of a, of the film that you're supposed to be reviewing. Um. So, yeah, there is a difference, and there's a difference in the gaze. Just going off of what you said, Kristen, uh, this was mentioned a couple of times by a couple of different people, that three-quarters of people who watch... I mean, film is all about desire. The whole point of film is you see beautiful people. Like, that's that's what Hollywood is based on, for God's sake. And the use of the camera is about desire. And it's been written about, you know, ad infinitum by all kinds of critics and theorists and everything. This is not something that's new. And it's the same thing with the gays. You can't really talk about the male gaze or the female gaze without talking about desire. And without talking about what the camera is trying to make you want as a person. Um, And so to say that, like, that just doesn't enter into professional film criticism is, is, is incorrect. And it's ahistorical. And it's it's wrong like if this guy is basing his entire thing on like um you know i'm a real critic or something that you're obviously not a real critic because you don't know any of this shit because you would know that this is what cinema is is about for god's sake he's just mad because no one's thirsting after him what's well, to, yeah. <laughs> to, to jump back on something what Kristen was saying earlier 
just the historical root in the reaction against any kind of, I mean, I, I'm thinking female, but, you know, if you add in queer, you know, gays in that too, how many, we're going up against thousands and thousands of years of, you know, history here. I think of women wearing glasses in, you know, classic Hollywood, how many of them are either bad or killed, you know, boys don't make passes who girls who wear glasses, it, you know, it, men get uncomfortable at the you know the fact of women gazing back and just we're still seeing this and they need to get secure and grow up (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's true so uh yeah we're gonna keep on thirst tweeting and thirst podcasting and no one's gonna stop us we are professionals damn it um so, so let's see there's some other stuff that's happened in the last couple weeks um this I think this news came out around the end of last week, but we didn't really get a chance to talk about it, and then it was fleshed out a little bit more this week. So, of course, la- this last Academy Awards, Roma did really well. It won three or four Oscars. I think it won three. And, um, yeah. And uh, there was this whole thing about the Netflix bias. There was all that weird crap about Steven Spielberg saying that he was trying to propose a rule change, which the Academy meets this month to discuss their rule changes, which then get announced around June. And he wants to limit streaming services from being eligible for feature film categories. He thinks they should be eligible for Oscar or for Emmys and not for Oscars, blah, blah, blah. Well, this past week or so, the justice department decided to weigh in on the subject, which was when I first saw the headline, I was just like, wait a second, why is the Justice Department getting in on this? But yeah, on Tuesday, um, Variety had a story that they have weighed in saying that it could be a violation of antitrust laws and competition laws if they limit or eliminate streaming services from being eligible, as long as they're following the rules of distribution, like putting it out in a theater for at least a week before the end of the year and things like that. So there's a quote from, um, this is, how do you say this name? Makan Delrahim, who uh, is the chief of the antitrust division at the Department of Justice. And in his letter to AMP, he said, in the event that the Academy, an association that includes multiple com- multiple competitors in its membership, establishes certain eligibility requirements for the Oscars that eliminate competition without pre-competitive, pro-competitive justification, such conduct may raise antitrust concerns. So, <laughs> I thought that was pretty interesting that, that they would come out and actually respond to it. And then he goes on to explain some of the different uh, things um, agreements among competitors exclude new competitors oh to exclude new competitors can violate the antitrust laws when their purpose or effect is to impede competition by goods or services that consumers purchase and enjoy but which threaten the profits of incumbent firms so basically y'all need to stop being whiny babies just make good movies and then you don't have to worry about Netflix beating you if your movie is better than theirs which that's not exactly, exactly. how the academy works but you know and um, so this is interesting. This is basically just shutting it all down, hopefully, before um, before Ampus can get too crazy. And uh, I don't know. What do you guys think about 
DOJ preemptively um, go, going out and talking to the Academy and warning them. I mean, the conspiracy theorist in me always pops up when we pick and choose what's considered a, a monopoly or not. Uh, antitrust laws in this country are incredibly shaky. I mean, we live in a world where Disney bought Fox and, like, no one seemed to have a problem with I'm it. I'm glad I'm not the only person who was thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we are very, very particular when it comes to what we consider violations. You know, technically, there's only one streaming uh, radio company on the airwaves. It's uh, it, You may think it's Sirius and XM, but that's actually the same company. They're just two different websites. So I always I always get very uh, eye rolly when I hear about you know this is a violation of antitrust. Netflix is a huge player. They have more money than God at this point. So I I wonder they how much of, of this of money was. Too, though, by the way. <laughs> well, right, but I I'm wondering how much of this was like hanging out with you know the right people, being like, hey, Ampus is being mean to us. You should tell them to stop, um, which in, in our current political structure, anything is possible. Um, and, and so hearing this, it, it's not like they're wrong. Um, it is, I think, a violation because they're specifically saying that a streaming service, which is now becoming the de facto, one of the de facto methods of getting movies into audiences' homes is going to be excluded. Um, and that doesn't just exclude Netflix, that excludes, you know, Amazon, um, which is a studio. Um, so it's it's a really murky gray water because Amazon has their studio. They also have their streaming service. Netflix is one of the, I think, the only ones that actually puts things just directly. I mean, they do have that, that weird theatrical um, window, but they are putting them day and date on on their their streaming site um so it's it's a very weird time to be uh releasing movies but this is the nature of the game and i think ampus just needs to embrace it and stop complaining about what makes a much like what makes a professional critic what makes a real movie at this point well we know it's netflix needs to be included in that conversation yeah it's cinematic it's cinematic gatekeeping. I mean, I, I to this day still don't understand what their fear is about, you know, these Netflix movies in contingent. Netflix is, their production, you know, they, they're investing in some really interesting content. And the fact that with that subscription, people can actually watch it in their homes when theaters are quickly pricing huge chunks of the population out. Thinking of that, um, the tweet going around that has been showing a ticket stub for an $18 matinee. I mean, families can't necessarily afford that. Once you add in food and such, the theater experience and three quarters of the time, you don't get an effective theater experience because something breaks, something's gross, something. So the theater experience really needs some help as it is. And the fact that Netflix allows people to sit in and watch it at home, more power to them. Well, I think, so if I understand where Spielberg is coming from, and this is not a defense of Spielberg at all. I just, I think in his point of view, he's a guy who has talked 
repeatedly about the fact that as a kid he would go to the movies and he would just spend all Saturday at the movies and like in the theater and watching all this stuff up on the big screen and that's how he saw Lawrence of Arabia and all these big huge movies that inspired him and he's been very open about that and I think that in his mind that is the way to and the only way to really watch and appreciate movies which is so interesting because for me, when I was a kid, I do remember going to see Raiders of the Lost Ark in the theater, but then, but I don't, I, I remember that we went and I remember like little snippets of being in the car because we were at the drive-in, but the way that I really engaged with that movie and the way that I came to love and appreciate that movie was because of the videotape that we had that we watched on repeat at home. You know, it's, we watched it on our TV. A lot of people, most people have seen most movies on a TV screen and so he's just completely ignoring that. Of course, he probably has a giant TV uh, movie screen in his own house anyway. But the thing Listen. too, well, the other thing that I just I want to take this this time to remind people too that um, participant media is the one is the studio that produced, not distributed, Green Book. Universal ended up distributing it, but participant media produced that movie they also produced Roma so I don't know I don't understand this whole idea that well that one because it's on Netflix that's just a TV movie they're produced by the same people for the same intentions you know it's 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 a theatrical movie guess what else participant media produced Steven Spielberg's The Post so it's like it's it's just such a it's so hypocritical and I just it's really frustrating that because he is a man of privilege and he has had all these opportunities he's completely ignoring the average person's experience well it's that's a generational thing right mm-hmm. there I mean as soon as you mentioned the going to the Saturday all day you know going to the theater all day on a Saturday and sitting in and watching a movie those were probably in the days when tickets were what, maybe 25 cents. And Mm -hmm. you could probably still, you could probably watch those newsreels, those cartoons, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's white male privileged gatekeeping. I mean, I think of family members of mine telling me, well, yeah, I could live in the night, you know, I could survive on $25 a week in the 1970s. You know, I didn't have to spend that much money. Times are changing. And that, yes, I mean, that, that preservation of film, I, I believe in the power of watching things on a big screen. However, hinting back to that, you know, it it's harder to achieve that power now. Things are, people, it's not as accessible. This takes that art of filmmaking and makes it more accessible. Hell, and I mean, and I'm with you, Karen, most of my things were already changing like that in the, you know, the, 90, the 80s and 90s, because I'm in the exact same boat as you. Most of my powerful memories with film were with VHS with recorded I had a v- recorded videotape of Star Wars I remember a down and out in Beverly Hills trailer right before it it yeah he's got you know yes it has power but we need to not we need to make it more accessible to the masses mm-hmm. not less Lauren any thoughts well and the way to the way to revivify the theatrical experience is is to make it more accessible again, and that's not something that viewers can do. 
that's not something that we can go like, okay, we're going to somehow make theaters more exactly. accessible to us. It, it's like, no, the, the way that you have to drop prices, you have to make theaters more, more handicapped accessible. You have to make them more accessible to families. You have to, you have to offer something. And I think some theaters have done that and some things like the AMC pass and, you know, movie pass and stuff like that were making inroads into and are making inroads into creating that that degree of accessibility i love going to the movie theater i think that all of us do but i i very often don't have the time i might not be able to afford it i might not want to put myself through it depending upon what i'm going to see and when i'm going to see it and that that being said this panic over a new medium has happened every single time something has changed in media. It happened when it happened in the movement from like Nickelodeons to actual movie studios and theaters. It happened in the switch from silence to talkies. Yep. It happened in the switch to color. It happened in the creation of television. It happened in the creation of home video. So what is happening right now and what has been happening over the past 10, 15 years is a changing of the medium and the, the creation of something new. And no one knows how to monetize it perfectly. And no one knows how to understand it perfectly, either from an artistic perspective or from a simple monetary and financial perspective. You know, how are we going to make money off of this? And that's what's going well, and on. And the irony. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, and the irony that one of the biggest disruptors in my lifetime is Steven Spielberg, and he's mad about disrupting, about disruptions now. So it's just kind of funny that eventually yeah. the people that are that are embracing Netflix now, when something else comes along new, they're going to be the ones that are complaining about it. So, of course, you, you everyone eventually becomes the of man. Course, yeah. Well, and I, I do think it's very indicative and very funny that after all of this stuff about, which was obviously directed not solely at Netflix, but at streaming in general, Spielberg turns around and does advertisements for Apple TV. Yeah. Uh -huh. and, and that kind of makes you go like, okay, so... Really, Stevie baby, really? So what was this really about? And so you've got all of those mixture of things between, you know, concern for the art and, and concern for your pocketbook. Uh, and and it's very difficult to parse all that stuff out. And I'm not saying that he's that he necessarily um, is meaning to be hypocritical, but it certainly looks hypocritical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So um, anyway, well, hopefully the Justice Department letter will put an end to this stupid rule change idea. Hopefully they'll they'll think a lot more broadly about about you know, embracing this and, and start to make moves. And I hope that these, over the last two years, they've invited 1,500 new members that are predominantly, they're younger, they're more in tune to current trends, and hopefully they will be able to, you know, start making some of these changes to embrace new technologies, new ideas. So we'll see what happens, but... um, Okay, we're going to jump around a little bit from the agenda, but... This actually, I think, is a good segue into a conversation that is unfolding this morning on Twitter. Um, people, I mean, this conversation happens all the time about art and politics and, like, get politics out of movies. And most recently we saw this with things like Captain Marvel and and that, you know, a bunch of 
boys were mad because she's a girl, I guess. I don't know why they're mad. But um, anyway, the conversation that I woke up to this morning that was fascinating to me was um, a bunch of people. William Bibiani, I don't know if you guys know who he is, but um, he had a tweet about how there's all art is political and so a bunch of people started sending him pictures of like paintings and stuff and asking him to explain how it was political and it was things like like um um Degas ballerinas and Monet's water lilies and stuff like that and he was actually giving the the political backgrounds for a lot of things and not just necessarily the exact piece but about like the the time he talked about impressionism and how much the nazis hated it someone even asked him to give some um give the political context for tetris and i'm trying to find the tweet now um and he said oh here it is i don't have to give tetris a political meaning the rights were owned by the russian government when it was distributed in the U.S. during the Cold War, sometimes as Tetris, a Soviet mind game, it put Russian music and iconography in arcades and PCs across America. Good choice. <laughs> so um, that just, is brilliant. Good for him. Yeah. Well, it's really funny because then later he also was talking about how like the biggest thing that has come out of this conversation is how many people don't bother to do any research about things before forming their opinions, which is so true. But but yeah, I know this is something that we've talked about a lot, and I just thought it could be an interesting conversation. Is all art political? Yes. 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 <laughs> all right, moving I mean, on. So. I, I mean, I will, I will say this is a this is a discussion I I talk about a lot in cinema. It's like saying all art is for better or worse. I mean, we talk about film being predominantly still about white men so it's hard not to say that all movies don't start with this sexist background or all movies don't start with a racist background they do and and movies for me at least are all political you can you can look at a time period and the movies reflect the culture which reflect the movies it's a dialectic they work in unison so it is impossible to divorce a film from the political context that in which it was made. It's important to look at the movies. I, I wrote a whole article about sci-fi last year as a response to Trump. And the first comment I got from somebody was, these movies were made all before Trump was elected. Yes, but you always make movies based on, uh, history has buildup. Yes, certain things take place abruptly and suddenly but you can you're always seeing this slow progression of things um so even if a movie wasn't made before trump was elected it's still commenting on the the rise of hostility that was leading up to his election um just like movies being made in the 50s you know oh what was before the mccarthy hearings yes but they're also commenting about the rise of consumerism and conformity that was happening in conjunction with mccarthy i mean Political stuff happens in multiples. It's all a progression. It's like saying that movies made, you know, 2002, 2003 are commenting on 9-11. They are, even if they aren't. Um, you have to look at the history. You have to look at the the, the nature of cinema at that time. Um, I mean, all of that goes into, you know, at least for all of us, we look at that stuff when we're writing, but most critics um especially 
I hate to hate, hate to be ageist, but younger don't feel that that's relevant, and it is. It's very relevant. It always has been. All art is political. Well, when we remember the discussion, the outrage that it received when it was implied that you know film journalists and film writers need to have a somewhat of a knowledge of history. People, yes, you're completely right, Kristen. People don't, yeah, the blog, I don't know, film bloggers, the younger, the film bros, I don't know. They People are hesitant to dive into that history. But I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, golden age of Hollywood cinema, you know, 1930s, Busby Berkeley, you know, some of the most nostalgic, fondly remembered musicals out there. Remember My Forgotten Man, you know, all of the depression rhetoric, there's always something there it's you know it might be buried it might need some research it might be you know squarely you know referring to something but there are political roots in everything that we produce and everything that's in all art yeah it's it's the zeitgeist it's the uh, it's the zeitgeist in combination with historical context and you can you can i think that it this I, a while ago i talked about the importance of studying films that were made in germany during the rise of the nazis and so and during much the yes Reich. and i think that that's a good way of looking at certain things because one of the things that you see in a lot of those films is that they do look a lot like the the contemporary musicals uh of of hollywood and the contemporary comedies and dramas and everything and but they have this undercurrent of you know german german exceptionalism um uh sort of an embrace of death there's all of this stuff that is going into these films that otherwise very superficially look like any other film you're going to get from the golden age of hollywood and so that's a good way i think to understand the political ramifications of filmmaking and yeah, you do have to be willing to do research. You do have to be willing to look at these things and say, like, you know, the Impressionists, the pre- part of the point of Impressionism was that it was pushing back against classicism and against the way that people were represented in pre-Impressionist work. And it was like, I mean, galleries refused to carry paintings by the Impressionists. Uh, you know, the, the entire artistic establishment pushed back against them. And one of the reasons why, because it was, it was this total shift in the way that we understand art and the way that we perceive art. And that's something that you have to understand via historical context. So there's this tendency then to look back at films that are not explicitly political, right? That are not like, we are now going to talk about a specific politician kind of thing. And, or we're not going to, we're now going to talk about, you know, World War II or fascism or the rise of fascism or anything like that. But the, these films that are not explicitly political are just like, oh, no, 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 they're, they're just entertainment. No, they're not. Even if they, even if they are just entertainment, what are they entertaining for? What are they selling? What kind of, you know, like Kristen's saying, what kind of consumerism are they selling? What sort of government are they selling? Are they liberal or conservative? Is there like a combination of attitudes that is going into that? Who wrote them? Who directed them? Why did they present them in a particular way? Can we interpret them through a queer lens or a feminist lens? You know, all of that stuff. And that is historical context. And it's also a degree of understanding of film history and of film theory. Because this kind of thing is talked about constantly in academic film circles and in film theoretical circles. And if you haven't read it, if you haven't like thought about it or read any of this stuff, then there is no way you're going to know anything about it. You're just going to be like, oh no, it's just entertainment. It's not, it's never just entertainment. But yeah, I agree with everything you guys are saying. And I think that, I think one of the big problems that I see and is pointed out by William in this series of tweets is the fact that 
people just have this assumption that if they don't see it or they don't they don't have a background to understand it then it just doesn't exist you know like well I haven't heard that history so it's not really part of it you know and that's it's I think in addition to we need to understand the film history and the context I think that a lot of people just don't even know or necessarily care to it's not that they don't know how but they don't necessarily care to read into a film really they just want to look at it just on the surface and and I I see this in like there was someone that you know I used to talk about movies with a lot we used to go to the movies all the time and after the movie it would be like well what did you like about it and he would just be talking about like oh it's super cool in this part where Jason Statham's beating up this guy and I'm like wait <laughs> you know like let's talk about this a little deeper and he just wasn't interested in that and then I talked to other people you guys my other colleagues and and it's you know we dig beneath the surface and there are people who just want to watch movies to be entertained that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but for those people then to say that that's the only way to watch a movie and that there isn't a deeper point that is actually completely missing the point i think i think Could, that we're all in agreement here yeah couldn't agree more I think so. <laughs> yes okay <laughs> all right so um, speaking of something else that we're all in agreement on, um, this actually came up last week, but we decided to hold off and talk about it this week because we would have more time. Uh, last Saturday morning, Jason Reitman. Sigh. Uh, yeah. Who, as we all know, is making Ghostbusters 3. Sigh. Uh, <laughs> he tweeted last Saturday a picture of Finn Wolfhard, Carrie Coon, and McKenna Grace, and said, meet the family, hashtag GB20. Um, so yes, it's official, McKenna Grace is now joining Carrie Coon and Finn Wolfhard, and one of the stories I saw actually said that she is going to be the lead of the movie. But McKenna Karen, Grace she can't be the lead! <laughs> She's a girl! <laughs> Exactly. Wait, Finn so, Wolfhard already has the Ghostbusters jumpsuit. You know he's going to be the lead. <laughs> but Kim, he can't be the lead. He's a boy. Oh, wait, never mind. He can. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, I know we all had thoughts. Um. Uh, okay, so I, I missed the Ghostbusters discussion, I think, when it happened. Um. I hate this. All of this. Um. I mean, I like McKenna Grace. I love Carrie Coon. But this sounds like there. there's no talk of what the plot is. It's just that this is some sort of, uh, they're the family that's going to be at the center of this. And the movie is going to star four young adults, um, two of whom will be females, two will be males. And I was just sitting there thinking, okay, so this is just Jumanji. This is just Goosebumps. This is just... It doesn't need to be a fucking Ghostbusters movie at this point. We had a good Ghostbusters movie. Came out very recently. You still have the original, um, which, full disclosure, I hate. Um, so, what what is this? This just is them trying to say that, well, that last movie didn't work because it was too much woman. Here, we at least have you know, some kids for the kids because kids are going to go see this. Can kids even watch the original? I remember it not being age appropriate. Um, 
Oh, I saw it as a child. It wasn't until I was a little bit later that I realized I probably right. should Right. You don't get what, you know, Dan Aykroyd is getting from the ghost when no, it happens. You like, your brain what? just filters. When you're a kid, your brain just filters out the things that you don't Ex- understand. Exactly. Yeah, I guess happens as an adult, stuff. too. But... <laughs> oh, there totally is, but yeah. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it, it's this already seems like a movie that is meant to please a mass audience, which I would love to see the film bros rip apart. This movie's not for kids. This movie's for fine, white, heterosexual American men. Um, I don't know. I'm not really into this. Um, and I say this as a reformed Jason Reitman stan who um, would say that he hasn't made a good movie in the last seven years. I'm trying to remember the last good uh, I one. I think Tully was good. Tully's, I like Tully's. Tully. Yeah, it's, it is what it is. Um, I didn't hate it, I guess. Um, yeah, so so there's that. I'm, I, I think my problem at this point is that I'm so mad at this movie for even existing that every bit of news just wrinkles me. So it's hard for me to just be like, cool, I like McKenna Grace. I love Carrie Coon. I even like Finn Wolfhard. I'm just mad that this is happening altogether, so I can't be nice about it. Uh, I, I will, I will say something as a huge Ghostbusters fan and someone who just like, I love the original films with all of their problems and they have many, um, you know, I love the original films. I, I, I remember watching the cartoon show as a kid. I loved the cartoon show, uh, the real Ghostbusters. There was another cartoon called the extreme Ghostbusters, um, and and of, of course I love the 2016 film, but yeah, I, I'm in the same place as Karen is, and I think that as Kristen is probably as Kim is as well. That we're we're just it's so exhausting with all of the shit that we went through over the 2016 Ghostbusters and all of the unhappy men and the complaining and the just everything. This this whole thing just smacks of pandering and pandering to exactly the wrong demographic because they're exactly. the ones that bitched and bitched and bitched and now finally they get what they want um and i would but it feels a little bit like they're pandering to us too because oh there's girls in it yeah so well She's, and, she'll be a single working mom that'll appease you ladies yeah. right and i mean i would totally welcome it if this turned out to be nothing but a bunch of like you know adolescent girls and women kicking ass and like the boys were marginalized but that's not what's going to happen um yeah. it, it it just it just isn't. I cannot see that happening, not with Reitman at the helm and not with the way that they're presenting it, and not with someone like Ben exactly. Wolfhard being cast in it, with you know, bringing all of the, the baggage over from Stranger Things and all of that stuff. Like I I just I love the twenty sixteen film so much it actually really revivified my love of Ghostbusters. And to see this now, I'm just like Leave me alone. Like, I, I don't want this. Kim? I'm I'm right there as well. I mean, I... Well, my... I, I won't tell a lie. My exact response when I saw the news, I think I tweeted at you. I said, man, is there... Are these the only two kids working in Hollywood? Mm-hmm. I, I don't... You know, I, it's good casting, but I'm really not excited about this movie i mean and i say as somebody who grew up watching the 84 version and i liked early jason reitman but everything about this movie you know to go right along with what you guys have all been saying it smacks of just going in to appease the fanboys this will be a cleaned up 
you know, appropriate mass marketed studio version with a Reitman back in there meant to bring the, you know, bring it back to the fanboys when they, you know, since they rebelled so hard when it left. And I, I'm not excited about this movie. I wasn't excited about it when it came out and it's just, I, meh. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I watch the 2016 film every time it's on and sometimes even when it's not because I do have it on Blu-ray and I love it so much. It, it just, it's such a great movie. I, I'm so frustrated by the, the whole thing with, you know, boys and whining and getting their way. And I would also, by the way, just like to take this opportunity to remind everybody that um, Jason Reitman's dad, Ivan, actually produced, not executive, produced the 2016 film. So if people are whining about it, yeah, he was, he had a lot to do with how that movie turned out. So go away. Any other final thoughts? Let's just move on. <laughs> I would like to know who's, I, I'm going to lay money. I'm going to stake money right here and right now. That one of those kids will be somebody's grandson or grandkid. Yeah, I, I'm going to say Dan Aykroyd's, but where I, I bet it's going to be something like that. Uh, could be. Yeah. I don't know. It'd be interesting to see. Well, I'm not, I'm not even that interested. It's not that interesting to me. I'm just tired of this. I want it to go away and not exist. Um, speaking of things I want to go away and not exist, we got a trailer this week for the Joker with, uh, what's his name? Joaquin Phoenix. <laughs> I actually had to think about that. That before. guy. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to say about, about the Joker movie. I was not excited about it because I, I do not, there are certain characters that are just these like awesome villains because you don't know anything about them or their motivations, who they are. And the Joker's always been one of them for me. And so when I first heard about this movie, I was just like, they're going to make a movie where they're going to explain why he's the Joker. And it's going to be some tragic backstory that's going to try to make you sympathetic toward him. And I did not want that. And then the trailer hit this week and I was just like, yep, this is exactly what I thought it was going to be. And I still really don't want it. Does, does Joaquin Phoenix look good? Sure. Um, does the movie production value look good? Yeah, okay. It does. But that doesn't mean that I want this movie to exist. What do you guys think? Uh, I watched the trailer for this. I have no connection to it at all. Um, I don't really care. And watching the trailer for this, I just kept thinking, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds about right. I really don't care. Um, it's definitely a... a trailer that I felt belonged in a Suicide Squad universe. I mean, there's this really, like, quasi-creepy feel that they want you to um, to see with the, the music choices. I think one of which is Jimmy Durante. <laughs> um, and I was just like, we get it. It's somber. You want your Oscar nomination for the Joker. You want to break that mold. Um, I just... I really don't care. I, I feel like we've seen, like, the justification for why the white guy is violent movie so many times. And in 2019, I just don't think we need it. I don't want it. Um, we got Zazie Beats. She's great to see. She has no dialogue. But, you know, who needs her to speak? Um, yeah. Well, the, the backstory thing, this is something that Lauren and I, we were discussing a little bit back and forth. And... 
and Lauren, you made a really good point. My thing was just specific to the Joker, but you were talking a lot about darkness for the sake of darkness. You want to comment on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm just, I am personally very tired of darkness for the sake of darkness and particularly when it comes to, to villains like this. And, and you had mentioned that, you know, not every villain needs to have a justification and the, the Joker is actually one of those that probably plays off better if he's just bad. And, mm-hmm. you know, he doesn't have some tragic backstory that, that at a level justifies his badness. And that's going into what, what Kristen was saying about, you know, the white man, the disaffected, you know, what we need right now is a movie about a disaffected white man losing his shit and killing everybody. Like, that's exactly, we have not seen that either in cinema or in real life. I was about to say, uh, that's real life right now. Yeah, it, exactly. And I, I think that right at this moment, it, that's exhausting. And that's, I think one of the reasons why we're so into movies like Captain Marvel and, um, you know, some of the stuff that has come out about Shazam and Wonder Woman and Aquaman is that they're actually happy films, and they're hopeful films and we really don't need this return to you know we're gonna go plunge into the darkness of you know uh, of some sad sad man who gets upset that people treat him badly and then kills everyone um you know when i I said i said earlier one of my favorite villains in shakespeare is iago because iago doesn't even know why he's doing what he's doing he just does it and he has whole monologues talking about, why am I doing this? I don't really know why I'm doing this, but I'm going to keep on doing it. And there's something really fascinating about that kind of monstrosity versus, you know, we have to give him this sad story that explains why he's really just misunderstood. I'm getting, I I mean, people who are, people are excited for it. Yes, fine. Go see it. Be excited for it. But once again, we're having the... My God, the word's escaping me now. The hype. The hype already after one trailer is driving me absolutely up the wall. I mean, and I'm like I mentioned on Twitter yesterday, I'm going to truly hope that this writer meant visually or narratively. But I saw somebody comparing it to early Scorsese. And I'm like, dude, let's why do we have to go there after a single trailer? I think because the movie I mean, just blatantly is... ripped him off. I mean... <laughs> I this I watched this trailer again last I, I've watched it twice now I watched it last night to kind of give it another shot I I grew up I the early Batman the Michael Keaton Batman is kind of one of the first movies I remember seeing in theaters so I've kind of I've always been there for Batman and the Joker doesn't need I'm with everybody else the Joker doesn't need a, a heart-wrenching backstory or whatever the hell they're gonna try and give it i this this holds no appeal for me um i'm completely with lauren in the fact it's like great another disaffected white man you know showing us why his life is so hard there's nothing about this speaks to me nothing about this appeals to me and uh, and this is coming from somebody who liked the christopher nolan batman so I, d- I don't know what about it, you know, is not working for me, but I'm not there for this. Yeah, I just, one of my favorite quotes in the Christopher Nolan versions came in The Dark Knight, and it's when Michael Caine says, some men just want to watch the world burn. And 
Exactly. They've taken that and said, no, but it's because he got beat up and had a head injury. And Although I will say, it always seems like, in real life, people that do terrible things had some kind of head injury at some point in their lives. So, it's like, let's just take that chirp. I don't know. Anyway, um, I don't want this to happen. I'll see it because I have to because that's my job and I'm a professional, but that's it. Um, but we do have a related question question. What? It comes out October 4th. Yeah. Oh yeah, it does. Um, but we do have a related question. This is from at Paws It's Paw. Who is the best on-screen joker? If you could be... Oh wait, sorry. It's two, two I think it's questions. two questions. So I copied best... it as yeah, typed. That's cool. Who is the best on-screen joker? Who do you guys think? Um, I would say... God. Okay, well our options are purely Nicholson and Ledger, right? Unless we go with tell no, Caesar yeah, Romero. Romero. <laughs> uh, I have no no connection to that one. So. We've also got Zach Galifianakis from the Lego Batman. Movie. I've never seen that movie. We've got oh man. So, um, so yeah, I, I would have to go Heath Ledger just because I've never actually seen any other performance, and I'm okay with that. Kim, this is this is such a hard one, I've, and I. Because Nicholson was my first, and I probably have the most experience with Cesar Romero. But in terms of the context of the question, I probably have to say Ledger as well. Lauren? Oh, Jack Nicholson. I am, I think, one of the few people that actually violently hates all of the Christopher Nolan Batmans, uh, including The Dark Knight. I think that Ledger gave a good performance, but it, I, I don't like the film, and I don't particularly find his interpretation of the Joker any more interesting than Nicholson's. I I actually do like the total indulgence and just insanity that Nicholson gets. And he's having a good time with it, and you can see that on the screen. And I think you can see that with Romero, too, that he's actually like, this is a fun role, and I'm going to have fun with it. Um, you know, Ledger is just so plunged into the darkness of it, and, and it, it works for the tone of the film, but it's not a pleasurable thing to watch. Nicholson is actually fun to watch. For me, this is actually easier to answer if I just say the only one that I've not liked was, um, what's his face? I like blocked his name out of my brain. Um, Jared Leto. He's the only one that I have not enjoyed. I actually... <laughs> <laughs> we forgot to mention him I don't even. think we forgot to mention him. We're talking about favorites. Yeah, that was a deliberate yeah. choice. But um, but that's the thing. Like, he's the only one that has taken on that role and done it in a way that I just did not like. I really find things to enjoy about every iteration that I've seen. Cesar Romero is just having a blast, which is what the Joker is all about. He's just having fun and being evil for evil's sake. And that's what Jack Nicholson does, too. Heath Ledger is very dark and it's a very different type of, of story. It's a very different character, but I love what he does there. I think he's so good and, and fascinating to watch for completely different reasons. I even really like Zach Galifianakis and the way that he voiced that character in the, in the animated Lego Batman movie. So every iteration of this character besides Jared Leto, I think has something really valuable, um, really valuable that they bring to that role and and I like it so um, the other part of the or the other question from also from at Posit's Paw if you could be trapped on a deserted island with three actors who would they be Kim you start oh you had to start with me yep. um 
George Sanders, because if I'm stuck on that desert island, I get to listen to him talk the entire time. <laughs> I was just going to say, are they it's, dead or alive? Yeah. That's a good it just says three actors. It's, it's not specific. It, it will be three. Um, David Tennant, because David Tennant. I mean, maybe he'll be the doctor and maybe they'll be a TARDIS. I don't know. And uh, one more. Oh, to go with voices again, I'll say Ronald Coleman, because I want I want interesting voices to listen to if I'm stuck there. Uh, Lauren. Uh, I hate these kinds of questions so much. Um, <laughs> okay, all right. So I'm going to say Kate Blanchett because for reasons. Um, Chris Hemsworth because I feel he would be able to build us a shelter and would also look really good doing it. Because reasons. <laughs> and also because reasons. Um, <laughs> Lauren's just creating an island orgy, okay? And I'm yeah, that's I pretty mean, much what I'm doing. I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. But like I say, Chris Hemsworth would be able to build us a shelter, possibly, you know, oh, Jason Momoa, because he would, like, hunt down things with his bare hands. Like, yes, okay, so there we go. Jason there you Momoa. go, bringing logic to it. <laughs> Jason Momoa, Chris Hemsworth, I was going to say, my, my three would just, we we all know we die, okay? <laughs> same, same. Um, I got, I got to, I got as far as Tom Cruise and I just stopped, so I don't know. Like, he's got enough personalities, he should count as three, right? <laughs> Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise. Cheating, yeah. so much cheating. <laughs> he would he would build that shelter he would hunt he would convert exactly. you to scientology and you'd have your island orgy all four right in a row exactly <laughs> see he can do it all um who else would i add to that i i really don't know um i mean i would take a couple of chris's sure hemsworth and pine that would be interesting that combination of three i, I don't even know what i would do that would be interesting Yep, that's mine, I guess. Because reasons. <laughs> yep. I mean, I think the reasons are pretty obvious. Yeah, again, island orgy. Um, so yep. so for me, um, I I kind of want to go with Lauren's, like, logic-based, like, actually create some sort of, like, civilization, but I don't really think I am. Um, Give in to the thirst. It's <laughs> it's more fun over here. Um, okay, so I I always overthink these questions. So I always ask like, okay, but what like what things do we have? Is it just the island? Do we not have anything else? Um, <laughs> so like, Jeremy Irons is a terrible choice, like theoretically, but I have to have him there um, purely as like a comforting influence, and also as as Kim pointed out, you know, you need a good voice. Like if you're gonna be trapped. Like, I could have him perform Shakespeare or something, and it would be fucking fantastic. Um, so there's that. No benefits. Like, we'd all, we'd die, but, I mean, whatever. Um, that's cool. Um, Army Hammer, because, A, he's Army Hammer, and um, as this is the end taught us, rich people would be saved in a situation first. <laughs> um, so I feel like that would be beneficial to getting us off the island. He'd be like my... My um, who's the rich guy in Gilgan's Island? I never watched it, but Mr. Howell. Yes, be my Mr. Howell. Boom. Um, and then yeah, as as Lauren pointed out, Hemsworth. Okay, because he could like build stuff, kill stuff, take his shirt off while building and killing stuff. Um, 
So, like, if we actually needed somebody to, like, make sure that we don't die of exposure, he would be that person. And also, like, again, Island Orgy would be fantastic. So, there you go. I I knew it was all going to root back to Island Orgy somewhere there. (laughs) Oh, always. There's always an Island Orgy. What's the point if there's not an Island Orgy? He's also uh, Hemsworth is also an Australian, and, and right. so he knows about dangerous wildlife. I suppose everything down there is trying to kill you. I hear, and he so. makes friends with cute furry animals, as exactly. we have learned from his Instagram. So, so he would actually logic. be perfect. So much logic. I love it. It's yeah, exactly. So there you go. And you say we're all unprofessional thirsty. We have logic and <laughs> Exactly. We think about these things very deeply. Uh, we had another question from Keith, which is at KH Derek on Twitter. Is fandom inherently toxic? There is this bizarre sense of ownership. It's almost as if the fandoms read Bart and took the death of an author to mean the work needs to be adopted. They become disappointed when that child, child being the work, uh, fails to live up to their expectations. So, uh, what do you guys think? Is fandom inherently toxic? I don't think fandom is inherently toxic. I think certain circles of fandom, I think toxicity flows in certain circles of fandom. Right. I mean, when you get to a certain level in engagement with that work, yes, there is some definite feelings of ownership. I mean, and you particularly see that now with when you're writing fan fiction, when you're the fan videos, there is so much opportunities now for fans to exercise kind of their own ownership over that role or, you know, to split into another area when you have those particular, and I'm going to, I'm going to call out the behavior when you have specifically that white male nerd culture of a certain age who maybe came of age before, before it was cool, you know, getting picked on, this was their outlet when they were childhood to suddenly, you know, this was their outlet when they were getting picked on. And suddenly that changed. And suddenly the girls who didn't like them are taking a lead role. That's yes. The toxicity flows, the toxicity flows through them. And I don't think it's all fandom because I have found certain sections of fandom, which are incredible incredibly welcoming, incredibly cohesive, incredibly fun to be a part of. But it's not hard to find those deep, dark corners of scum and villainy. Yeah, it seems like it's the parts of fandom that become very toxic very quickly are the parts that attract white males. It's kind of weird how that keeps coming up. Uh-huh. But, um, but Aaron, you just comparison... hate white men. <laughs> I know, it's true. I've been told that many times. Um, but, uh, well, one of the comparisons that popped into my head when I read this question was actually between uh, two actors. So in 2017, when Call Me By Your Name was, was getting a lot of traction and a lot of people were finding it, they there was this big influx of Timothy Chalamet fans. And it was to the point where if you said the slightest thing that wasn't effusive praise for Timothy Chalamet, then you were like this terrible, evil monster. I'm hearing. I mean, I'm hearing dissent against my sweet butter biscuit. No, no, no. This Chalamet. is this is not about Timothy Chalamet. This is about Timothy Chalamet fans, because like I got so much crap from people because I was not predicting him to win Best Picture. Mind you, this had nothing to do with my preferences in that campaign. This was just about my predictions, looking at the race and looking 
looking at what I thought was going to happen and got and my colleagues all did too we got so much shit for not for not saying oh yeah Timothy Chalamet is definitely going to win the Oscar fast forward that a year Kristen Stewart starts getting some buzz for some things and her fans are like hey do you think there's a chance that she might get nominated for an Oscar no not really oh okay that's a bummer thanks bye and it's just so funny because like you've got these people that on one hand are so like you're the evil worst person that ever existed for not fully being in love with this guy but over here you've got these other people who are just like oh well I just really want good things for her so you know it's it's you see that all the time so no I don't think fandom is inherently toxic I think certain people make it that way Kristen uh, Lauren I, I would say that if, if a person is toxic to begin with, they become more toxic when they get involved in fandom. And I think it's because fandom filters certain things for us and so it, or, or it expresses certain desires that we have. And those desires become heightened and the internet makes it even worse in some ways. Um, because you can find other toxic fans to you know attack non-toxic fans and all of that stuff. But I don't think that fandom within itself um, means that it's going to be toxic and and i've i've had you know in my own little niche fandoms i've had experience i've had great experiences with really amazing people and i have had not so great experiences and i again to go along with everyone else they have split along gender lines um most of my good experiences have been with female fans and most of my bad experiences have been with male fans and particularly older male fans um, and I think that, that part of that is simply, I think the part of that is simply about privilege and, you know, the, all of the problems that we've seen with the way that men behave in certain circumstances, uh, just in general and any kind of challenge to their authority, you know, even if it's simply the desire to write fan fiction or, you know, talk about certain elements of a television show or a film, um, the second that you begin challenging anything, any of their preconceived notions, they lose their shit. And that's not necessarily fandom. That is, that's the toxicity of, of a certain slice of male culture. Yeah, I think it's it comes down to the difference between like some groups feel like they own the thing that they're a fan of, and other people just appreciate and want to celebrate it. And that's where you get into those differences of people exactly. who are toxic and people who are not. So, yeah. Um, okay, so that is going to do it for questions. So. Um, Speaking of fandoms, we had a couple movies that are out this weekend. Uh, the first one is Shazam. How many of us saw that? I saw it. I saw it. I did. And Kristen, Lauren, no? Nope. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, Kim, why don't you start us off? What did you think of Shazam? I, I'm i still kind of working out where I came in with that movie. Because at one point, and I... I think I came into it with some real negative thoughts and real negative associations, not that excited for it. And I, it was cute. I will, I, I, I will say on a, especially on a very superficially, a superficial level, there were parts of it. I very much enjoyed. I very much, I, I'd say about three quarters of it. I really enjoyed and thought it was a fun movie. It very, I thought Zachary Levi worked incredibly well in the role. I was ready to not like him. I thought they played it very good for him, particularly the quippiness. However, where I think it struggled and where I'm going to try and avoid any potential spoilers here, 
the third act is kind of, I felt like there was a huge disconnect really between two stories that they wanted to tell. Um, Breaking it down as like a superhero origin story, I thought it was very fun, very cute. But once the superhero actually needed to do something, I thought it struggled. I kind of struggled with Mark Strong's character completely. I struggled with how he was integrated into the story. Thought everything got a bit too convenient, especially in the last kind of third, trying to get everything to fit together. Like you could see the script writer going, okay, this person knows this for reasons. And that is ultimately kind of what pulled me back for it. Is it amazing? No. I heard people in my screening trying to justify it as the best DC movie ever. No, it's not. This That needs to stop. Um, but it's taking, I think it's nice because it's taking DC into a bit of a lighter tone. I am, like I've said many times before, I am so over the you know, Zack Snyder Christ metaphors. And it was nice to see them going a bit more kind of quippy Marvel, which felt a lot better than some of the places DC has gone. Is it, is it the best? No, but it's fun. And I'm curious to see where they take it from here. Kristen, what did you think? Um, I saw this, I had very low expectations for it um, because uh, I'm me. Um, I'm not really big on Zachary Levi as an actor. So I was, hoping that I would be entertained, and I was. Uh, I felt that this has more in line with stuff like like Lilo and Stitch, almost, in the sense that it's about, you know, a kid having to deal with the system, um, which is, you know, considering that it's a predominantly white cast, like, we really make the foster care system look pleasant. Um, which I was like, okay. Um but I was, I was into it. Uh, I do agree with Kim. I think uh, Mark Strong, I mean, he's born to play a villain. He had a really sweet coat, dug that, but his- Very true. Yeah, his villain is um, pretty basic, pretty blah. I would have really just enjoyed if they hadn't gone the villain route and just showed Billy Batson having to acclimate to this, to his powers and to trying to kind of get rid of the chip on his shoulder, which the movie seems far more interested in and develops it more than the actual monsters just make it the monsters i think would have been really great um the third act was was good um i was happy to see some some weird george miller justice league elements come back in which gave me hope that maybe army hammer might show up in one of these movies one day um and you know i was i was entertained i was entertained um i had some big issues i jack dylan grazier as much as i love him for playing Eddie, he will always be Eddie from it. Um, I had real problems with um, Freddie, the character that he plays, who is disabled. I wrote a whole thousand word article on it um, that'll be out by the time this goes up. So look for it on Forbes.com. Um, but I had big issues with his with the, the way the character is written, not necessarily his performance, um, especially in the third act. Um, but other than that, I was entertained. This is a you know nice, pleasant little film. Um, I again as as other critics have laid out maybe don't take you know your toddlers to go see it but if you're looking for a nice family movie that like reminisces um almost that feeling of going to see a movie with your parents in like the the early 90s um this is good fun yeah i'm with you guys i i thought it was fun i didn't i wasn't blown away by it i 
in some ways enjoyed it more than Aquaman. In other ways, I didn't. Um, um, nothing uh, is Zachary. better than fish opera, okay? Nothing. <laughs> um, Zachary Levi, I was like, okay, so basically he's just Chuck, but he's been working out a little bit more. Like, that's exactly With an obviously padded suit. Oh, oh yeah, totally. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I mean... It's a fun movie. It's not something that I'm like, wow, this is one of the greatest superhero movies. I like 90% of the Marvel films better than I like this one. But, um, yeah, I thought I thought the kids were fine. I liked, I liked Jack Dylan Grazer because it's hard not to like him. Um, I, I was a little bit confused why they didn't ever address what his actual disability was. That was really weird. That line, you and I, Kristen, had talked about it. The line where he says something about being thrown out the window. That was a joke. That wasn't even what really happened to him. So, oh, like, I, I, I read it, I read it as, I read it as it was just like an, he, po he pauses it. No. No, 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 no. What he's trying, he's saying, he, because he says that their foster dad threw him out the window and he's trying to just freak, freak out Billy. It's right around that Game of Thrones line. It gets real yeah. Game of Thrones around here. Yeah. That, that was a total Looks joke. Looks like I'm going to have to revise yeah. my article because I totally missed that, <laughs> that, uh, subtext. Yeah. Yeah. So they never, ever address, like, what his disability is, which I thought was such a weird thing. It like, actually makes it worse. <laughs> yeah. So, anyway, but, um, yeah, I thought it brought in some interesting things. Um, I don't want to get too much into some of the stuff I particularly liked because it is spoilers, but, you know, Billy is in the system for a reason, uh, and there is some exploration of what happened, and, and, you know, so he's trying to figure out what happened to his mother and things, and, and I thought some of that was was going down a very interesting path and then kind of derailed itself a little bit. But overall, I, I, I mean, I would watch it again. I didn't dislike this movie at all. In fact, I don't think there's much about it that I disliked, if anything, over, like, you know. But it's, it's fine. I think that's what it comes down to is it's fine. So there you go. It's out in theaters now. You can go check it out. Hot recommendation, then... guys. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're into superhero movies, you like to see them all, definitely you're going to probably enjoy this one. So definitely, probably. That was really ringing endorsement. There. Yeah. More, more hot recommendations. <laughs> just like, yeah, you should probably see this or not. You know, whatever. Um, another movie that is out in theaters this weekend is Pet Cemetery. Uh, Chris and I saw this. Kim or Lauren, did either of you? I did not. Okay. No, nope, I'm well, we... boring. <laughs> well, we did do a car critique, which will be available for patrons, but um, we can do a quick little snapshot of our thoughts. Kristen, do you want to start? Thanks, I hate it. Uh, <laughs> I hated this movie. That pretty much Hated it. Um, I love the original, though. So, I mean, I have a deep-seated love for the for the Mary Lambert movie. Um, and I've been saying, I think, since the first trailer for this came out, since they announced that it was going to be remade, that I didn't want it. So color that how you will. But I thought this was just bad. I felt like it totally missed the point on what made the 89 version so fun. And I think it missed the point of what made the book compelling. Um, Jason Clark is Jason Clark. So, I mean... 
you get what you get there. Um, I loved Amy. I, the more I thought about it, I really liked what they did with Amy Simas' character. Um, I got to talk to her about it too, and she's super awesome. Um, but other than that, I just I think this movie should have either decided to go completely away from the source material, which it does, but it doesn't actually try to change anything regarding like POV or meaning or anything like that. Um, or it should have just stayed faithful to the book. Um, I, I think it's just a really big misfire. The people they were saying it's like so scary and the black comedy. Like, no, I've seen black comedies. Like, humor can be bleak. This movie is not funny. I don't think there's anything funny about our audience laughing that a disabled girl gets killed in a really humiliating fashion. But I maybe that's what they were going for. Our audience ate it up, so go figure. Um, I, I hated it. <laughs> I said that when we reviewed it. I hated it. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't feel as strongly as Kristen does, but I definitely did not enjoy this movie. It does not... It does... It, it really waters down the the original story. It really it boils down everything that the book and the original film are about and turns it into something that's really just about just it, like all the horror in it becomes just that gross horror where it's it's really just about what you're looking at and not really about how it gets under your skin or how it makes you feel. It's just like ew, I don't want to see this, you know. And so that was that was very frustrating. It's a very cheap version of the story. And I understand what they were going for when they decided to change. Because, um, of course, originally it's the, the two-year-old Gage who is the one that dies and, and they bring him back. But in this story, they've shifted it. This is not a spoiler because it's in the trailers. But they shifted it, so now it's the daughter. And... I kind of understand where they were going with that and why they wanted to do it because she is older. She supposedly does understand death. But even in that, when they have conversations with her about death and dying and the afterlife, I think that they didn't really accomplish what they were setting out to do by making that switch. So altogether, it's just, it's, it's not a good movie. I actually really didn't like this one at all. I didn't hate it as much as Kristen, but I definitely don't recommend it. I thought your tweet summed it up best. <laughs> just go on. Just go on. I don't remember what I said. You said dead is, sometimes dead yeah. is better than watching yeah. Pet Cemetery. Oh yeah. I would. I would just go say listen to the the cover of the Ramones theme song that's on Spotify. That's the best. Mm-hmm. That was literally. I looked at Karen. I said this is the best part of the movie. That's it. It was true. Yep. <laughs> so true. So, all right. Well, that's going to finish up this episode. We thank you so much for, for listening. Um, if you'd like to find the rest of our episodes, you can always go find us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, um, Podbean, everywhere that you find podcasts. We're there. Um, you can also connect with us a lot of different ways online. We're on Twitter at Citizen Dame Pod, on Instagram at Citizen Dame Pod, Facebook.com slash Citizen Dame. You can email us. We like those. We get them once in a while. And that is CitizenDamePod at gmail.com. Make sure to go to our official website, CitizenDamePod.com. Noticing a theme here. And uh, at our official website, you can see all kinds of fun stuff. Thirsty Thursdays, because yes, we thirst and we're proud. Um, Dame Struck, we have our... Um, um, 
top fives. We have all kinds of stuff. It's fun. It's a party over there. Go to our website. Um, also, if you want to hear our car critiques and all kinds of other bonus content, go to patreon.com slash citizen. Including our d recent draft. It'll be up. Yep. It's there. Uh, you can throw us a little bit of money if you don't want to commit. That is our Ko-Fi account is ko-fi.com slash citizen dame. You can pick up some awesome swag and merch at zazzle.com slash citizen dame. Oh, and we should probably also mention that this month we are giving away a copy of On the Basis of Sex, a movie that you might maybe have heard us mention once or twice. Or 20,000 times. So for the last six months. Yes. Um, so we're giving that away this month, and there's. Uh, how are we doing so, that? So, uh, uh, to enter, um, please leave us a review on iTunes. Screenshot it. Find a way to get it to us, and that will be uh, considered an entry. Yes. There you go. Super easy. And um, you can also find us individually on the webs. We are all over the place. I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. Kristen, where are you? I'm at journeys underscore film. Lauren? I am at LH Business. And Kim? At KPierce 624. Awesome. So just so you know, we're taking a week off next week because Kristen and Kim will be at TCM and Lauren will be somewhere I don't remember where. Sorry. And I'm going to be sleeping. So. And well, you and I are also going to be recovering from the fact that we're going to be near Avengers tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. That's happening. I'm like that's trying happening. not to think too much about it. <laughs> so. I thought we might be near Chris Hemsworth tomorrow, Karen. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. That, that might be a thing that happens. So if I die, just say I said something profound before. Of course. Course, I want my yes. final words to be holy shit it's Chris Hemsworth <laughs> that's, that's when he's going to come over to you and be like so can can you please stop talking about my pants please <laughs> I'm going to be like I have no idea what words mean no I, my mom literally was like she's like are you going to literally ask him the question that I keep saying I want to ask if I could form words is I have no question can you just smile at me <laughs> Anyway, so that's happening. And so, yeah, so we will be back in two weeks. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. We're tired of sitting home while the guys have all the fun. So we're getting on a plane, gonna show them how it's done. Flying international with one thing on my mind. And it's not the type of thing you find in a travel guide. Not looking for art museums, not looking for mausoleums. Trip to see him.